Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rambling Rev. I am your host, Pastor Scott Dalen. I am an ELCA pastor in Southwest Iowa, and I present these episodes every week for a couple of different reasons. Now, the first reason I do these is to take my brain out of the mode of background work over the course of the week and move into the process of writing and preparing the sermon that I will proclaim to my my congregation, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, to my congregation for the weekend. That's the first reason I do these. And the second reason is just to allow you, the listener who have come across this uh, for whatever reason brought you here today, whether you are a regular listener and subscriber, for which I say thank you, or if you have just somehow stumbled across this, just to gain some different insight in the assigned text based on the Revised Common Lectionary. The Revised Common Lectionary is a three-year cycle that divides up scripture into usable worship-related passages. And that is commonly used by many different denominations, including mine in ELCA. And so that's why I do these. That's where that comes from. That dictates what passages I will be using. This particular Sunday, which is February 2nd, 2020, and is the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, also happens to be Groundhog Day, though that's a completely unrelated situation. The assigned text for this particular Sunday is Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Now, a word on where we're at. Uh, we are still, as I mentioned, in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is a season in the church year when we continue to look at different ways that Christ is revealed to the world. And there's many different aspects of that that come about in the different passages that we go through over the course of the season and, of course, over the course of the three years. This one is no different. If you happen to catch last week's episode, we were looking at the initial portion of Jesus' ministry immediately following his baptism and a period of 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. Then he moves into his ministry, which as we hear, happens up in Galilee in the northern part of the Holy Land or the region now known as Israel. This is kind of a direct, almost direct continuation of that. There's a little bit of narrative that tells us what's going on as he's kind of traveling around through Galilee. He's active in the different communities and in the countryside. And we hear that he is um, preaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news, healing every disease and every sickness. And because of this, uh, his fame is spreading. He's becoming known not only in Galilee, but also in Syria, which was the area to the north of Galilee. He's kind of getting known outside of just his immediate circle and we hear that great crowds are coming to him all sorts of people who are sick and afflicted with various ailments are coming to him to be healed and he's tracking great crowds and we hear and this is the very last verse of chapter four and i think it's important because it sort of sets up who his audience is we hear great crowds followed him from galilee the decapolis jerusalem judea and from beyond the jordan this is important as we hear about these different regions and cities and areas because we find that his audience in these crowds is going to be a mixed bag. It's not all one culture. It's not just Jewish people who are following him, and it's not just the few disciples that he's called at this point, but he's attracting great crowds of, of people who will be a mix of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, they're a mixture of various nationalities or cultures, if we want to say that, or cultural identities. All kinds of different people are going to be followers of Jesus, or at least are coming to listen to him and be healed and witness the miracles and all that. So that's that background that's leading now into the beginning of chapter five. Now chapter five and the Beatitudes as they're commonly known, this kicks off a long portion of teaching that we find here in Matthew's gospel known as the Sermon on the Mount. It it's, encompasses the entirety of chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven, a long ongoing teaching of Jesus. 
Now, there's a similar situation found in Luke's gospel. It is not in Mark. It is not in John, but it is in Luke, and it's known as the Sermon on the Plain. It's much of the same teachings, just kind of put into a different setting, and it's not as extensive. It's, it's a shorter amount in Luke's gospel, although this specific portion, known as the Beatitudes, there's some differences within Matthew and Luke as well. There is some overlap between the two, but Luke's gospel and Luke's feature of the Beatitudes, which we actually had in the lectionary not very long ago, also features the simultaneous woes. There's the blessed are, and then there's the woes. And Luke sets it up in a way that really lines off both sides of, of many different coins. Now, Matthew's is only the blessings or the blesseds. And there's more of them. And sometimes it's argued that Matthew's version is a little bit more spiritual in nature. Uh, for instance, we have the poor in spirit, uh, as opposed to just the poor uh, and uh, things of that nature. But uh, that's a lot of background. And that's clearly what we're going to focus in on. Our, our passage today is from the Beatitudes. So now that I've talked for a while, how about I go ahead and read it? And then we'll talk a little bit more and get into it specifically. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, that's, that's the reading. So as I kind of begin to think about this, several different things come to mind. Now, I already mentioned the consideration of Jesus' audience, of who would be hearing him. And there's a little bit of ambiguity here. We hear about the crowds, and we hear Jesus goes up the mountain, and then his disciples come to him. And then we hear, then he began to speak, opening his mouth, and he taught them. Now, we don't know exactly who is he addressing. Is he only addressing the disciples, who at this point, there's only four of them. We haven't heard about the call of the other eight. Is he, or is he addressing the crowds? And it seems, based on the entirety of the, the Sermon on the Mountain, especially the narration at the end of it, that he's addressing everyone, that everyone's listening to him. And so he's got that mixed group of audiences. Now, why is that important? On one hand, we have the Jewish culture. Now, the Jewish culture is one that they know themselves, their cultural identity is tied very closely into being God's chosen people into their faith in Yahweh, their faith in, in, in the one God. Uh, and as we hear in the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Some of the rest of Jesus' audience would have been from a polytheistic culture. They would have had many gods. So maybe this idea is, is somewhat foreign to them. But, but to simply be known as one who is blessed by God, who is as a, a people who are claimed by God, that would perhaps be foreign to them. And that's important because of the, the way that some of the original language works here. Now, if you've heard any of my, my episodes before, you know I tend to focus in on some of the distinctions that, that come from the original language. I'm going to do that again here. The classical Greek. And when Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are these, blessed are these, blessed are these. In this particular instance, uh, that comes from the Greek word makaroi. And that is a nominative word. So blessed is nominative, not so much like it's saying 
I am blessing you in a verb sense. It's more like you are known as one who is blessed. It's like your name. You might as well, your name might as well be blessed one. And that's what each of these are. Blessed are. And it's present tense. Every time it's present tense. And then we, as we continue to pay attention to the, the, the implied tense within the various statements, I think that's important to note as well. And the first one is remains present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, he, the kingdom of heaven is here now. That seems to be the basis for Jesus' ministry. I said that in last week's episode, that that's the first public ministry thing he says. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And blessed are you. You are one who is blessed because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, from there, we kind of move into a situation where it's all, it's all, you are blessed now, blessed you are, in the midst of this difficulty, but the reversal is coming. Present tense now, future tense result. Present tense, future tense. And that seems to be the remaining portion of it, at least until we get to the very end when Jesus says, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad your reward is great in heaven in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, in some instances, as I've played around with this passage before, and it's a pretty familiar one for me, I've thought about the idea that Jesus almost seems to be implying, remember, you are still blessed even when life sucks. It's going to change. It's going to get better. It speaks to this great reversal. Now, if we also think about that, we think about the presence of the kingdom being with those who are marginalized, being with those who are suffering, being with those who recognize their own brokenness and their own inability to create maybe a, a good life for themselves that they, they realize that they are powerless against the, the powers of the world and what the world says is blessed. God is saying something different. I think that's a sense that we find in this. Another individual who pointed something else out to me, and I'd never thought about it this way before. It's an interesting way of, of thinking about it, that the the progression that Jesus goes through in these different statements really sorts of sort of indicates our growth as believers or this process of sanctification. It, it's a big fancy word we use for the ongoing growth and maturity and, and transition and change that we go through in our lives as believers. That when God finds us, we are poor in spirit and we are mourning and we are, then we learn to be meek or gentle and then we hunger and thirst for righteousness and then we find mercy for others and our heart is purified and then we make peace and granted and then as we move on eventually we we will face persecutions now that's an interesting way of thinking about it i hesitate to say that too much in our current setting here in the united states we are not persecuted as believers in Christ. Sometimes we like to think we are, but we're really not. There are, there are other places in the world where Christians are actually persecuted for their faith. And there are certainly instances throughout history where that has been the case. And for Jesus' audience, any of them who became his followers, including the actual disciples who were sitting there, they will face this. They will face persecutions as they grow through their own witness and their own action in the early church. And, and so there's there's definitely some some truth within that. It, that's maybe not prescriptive for everyone. As I said, I, I don't necessarily think it applies to, to us in this setting, but uh, it can for, for some other ones. But but again, so that's a, a just an alternate way of thinking about it and looking at it. But But I think above all, this continues to be an evidence of the way that the kingdom is coming near even when it doesn't seem like it. 
and the promise that God will be found with the marginalized, that God will be found with those who suffer, with those who the world has discounted. And I believe that we continue to see that sense throughout the scriptures. Think about the some of the earliest examples of, of when God is revealed within the world or, or who God chooses to be found with. And if we think about the, we go back to the book of Exodus and, and a culture that in many ways really began in slavery, in ultimate marginalization, in bondage, and that we worship a God, that we have a God who sees them and will be found with them, who sides with the marginalized, who sides with the slave, who sides with the one who has no agency. What does that say about our God? Uh, what does that say about the presence of our God in the world if, if the blessed ones of God began in that state, in slavery, and then God chooses to be with them and dwell among them in, in the wanderings and in the with the tabernacle. And I, I kind of touched on some of that last week as well, but but that really seems to be a way that, that God is revealed, that God will be revealed and found with those that the world discounts. I think that this is interesting to, to ponder on. This particular Sunday is also one that's known as presentation of our Lord. That's kind of an alternate batch of readings that could happen. And we find this out of Luke. It's still the infant Jesus when he's presented in the temple. And there's the presence of not really a prophet, but an old guy named Simeon and Anna as well. And they are witnesses to the divine in the baby and, and make comment on that. And as I thought about that, I thought about what is the ways that the divine is revealed. What was it about Jesus that revealed the presence of the divine that was somehow different? Somehow he was able to just walk up to individuals and say, follow me, and they did. What was it about him? And then not only the the, the presence of the divine within the human Jesus, the, the physical presence of God, but think about now and how what are those things that make us see, oh, I see God at work there. I, I, I see the presence of the divine in this moment. I see the hand of God upon this, however we want to word it. What are those things that reveal the presence of God, the presence of the kingdom that is among us because this God has chosen to dwell among us? That's a lot of what's happening, I think, in this passage, especially if we put it in a conversation with, with some of the other passages that are also possibilities for this weekend. Perhaps that resonates with you. Uh, that's, that's kind of the direction that I'm planning on going with the sermon and, and exploring of what are the ways that the divine is revealed and what does it mean to be one who is called blessed by God. So that's kind of what's happening. I want to say a big thank you again for for your time to tune in and, and give this a listen. If you happen to be listening on iTunes and you want to give a rating and a review, that would be spectacular. That really kind of helps put this podcast in front of other people. Otherwise, I hope you have a blessed week and we will catch you next time.